We're talking baseball from Flushing the Chavez Ravine. This is the 22 Weeks Offseason Podcast. I'm your host, as per usual, Matt Ryan. Folks, thank you so much for joining us on this show this week. We've got a great conversation with the author of the new biography, Gil Hodges, A Hall of Fame Life. Mort Zachter joining us on this show. Mort came down to the studio and had a conversation with me about the life and career of Gil Hodges, the world of baseball, and inside the voting process of the Baseball Hall of Fame. Gil Hodges has had an amazing career. He should be in the Hall of Fame as a manager and a player, but he is not in as either. We go into a little bit of the politics behind the Hall of Fame voting and why he's not in and why certain players are in above him. We have a great conversation about that and also his book, Gil Hodges, A Hall of Fame Life. Enough of me yammering. Let's go to Mort Zachter. This is the 22 Weeks Interview Series. I'm Matt Ryan, joined across the table by Mort Zachter, the author of Gil Hodges, A Hall of Fame Life. Mort, thank you so much for traveling all the way out here and sitting down with me face-to-face. Thank you very much, Matt, for having me. Well, the process of the book, it seemed like it was a long time coming. You grew up in Brooklyn, and one of your biggest influences was Gil Hodges because the legend of Gil Hodges in Brooklyn. What was the perp- like? What was the first idea of you writing this book or just building the bridge to get from a small kid in Flatbush on King's Highway to here. Right. When when I was a kid growing up and I'd walk to my public school, PS 197, I would cross Bedford Avenue. And this was in the 60s. Hodges was still in Brooklyn even though the Dodgers were long gone. And I was so happy with the fact that one of their stars had stayed For any kid growing up in the neighborhood, Hodges was a local hero, and he was my hero. And uh, in 1969, virtually everyone was a Met fan, probably across the country. But I was a Met fan, and uh, his death, early death, he was 47 when he died, basically produced a situation where he very quickly became forgotten but pretty much all but the hardcore Met fans mm-hmm. with the exception of every year or two he'd be up for a Hall of Fame um, nomination and uh, he never got in eventually that passion that started with me as a kid led itself to saying you know what I have a chance now to write a book about him let me try it. What do I've got to lose? I never wrote a biography before. I'm going to give it a shot. And with this book, it, it's really sad that there's not more books about Gil Hodges. There are books about Campanella. There are books about, obviously, Jackie Robinson and a lot of the great Dodger players that he played with. But there was no real definitive work building his entire life and career, or at least not one as good as this one. And it took a lot of hard work and digging. I didn't even know he managed the Washington Senators before. Before he became the manager of the Mets. Right. Uh, I started to work on this book. The idea came to me in 2006 to definitely take this project on, and I got a contract. Uh, since that time, there has been another biography written about Hodges as well, but it took me a long time to finish it, and now it's done. But what you're saying is true. Historically, uh, when I started this project, there had been no full-length biography of Hodgers written. And um, 
this is really the the first one that is for a university press where it's fully annotated. But the key is I try to make the um, body of the text read with a narrative so that it would interest people and hopefully interest people, younger people such as mm-hmm. yourself, and so that a whole new generation of, Gil- of fans would realize who Gil Hodges was. And I guess the key element, um, I think, of my motivation later on was twofold. Number one, I said it's really a crime he's not in the Hall of Fame, but the underlying that was is that this was a guy who was really big on um, integrity, sportsmanship, and character. And what do I mean by that? Let me give an example in terms of to relate it to modern day. Um, We're in an era, and I learned this interviewing a lot of old players, most professional athletes, especially um, baseball players, football players, basketball players, they were usually the best player on their junior high school team, their high school team, American Legion if they played. Most of the time they went to college on their college team. And they usually have been pretty well taken care of, pampered, and they've grown up in an era of selfie, Twitter, it's a lot about the self. And here was Hodgers, who was a guy who was basically self-effacing. He actually preferred not to be in the limelight. He would try and defer it on to his players at all, all um, opportunities he could. And I think the best example of that I came across in my research was in 1965 when Hodgers was, as you point out, many people don't know it, he was managing the Washington Senators. This is before he came to the Mets. And he had an outfield named Jim King. And in one particular game, Jim King hit three home runs in the one game. Now, that's an unusual feat for a baseball player. Only a number of hundreds, few hundred players have done it in baseball history. And the Washington Senators in that period, they were the expansion Senators. Um, and uh, later on today, they're the team that moved to Texas, became the Texas Rangers. But they were horrendous team. And this guy, Jim King, was a journeyman player. And after this three-home run game, all of the reporters came to him from the Washington Post and the other Washington papers. And it was his day to shine. And one of the reporters said to Hodges, who was usually the guy they would go to after uh, a game, because he was the former star of the, the Brooklyn and Los Angeles Dodgers. He had won world championships. And he said, almost as an afterthought, he said, Gil, did you ever hit three home runs in one game? And Hodges answered, no, not me. I'm not in the record books of that one. And that's all he said. <laughs> the reporter um, went, hit the, hit the, did some research after that, a day or so later, and he looked up and he saw that Gil Hodges was at that time one of only 10 players who had hit four home runs in one game. <laughs> but he said nothing about it. And that's an example of humility. It's an example of, there's a Hebrew word for it, it's called avanut. What avanut, it literally means humility, but it also, it really represents an ability. It's not a false humility, but it, it means you 
basically don't always have to be in the limelight. Mm-hmm. And if someone else has a chance to shine, you don't mind giving them their chance. Yeah. And maybe Gil Hodges, he was a very Catholic guy, <laughs> but he was Avenut. <laughs> and, and that is the whole Brooklyn culture, too. That's, I think, one of the reasons why he might have stayed in Brooklyn, just being a part of the working class. He grew up in a working class town. His dad was a coal miner. Right. His whole family came from coal mining. And that his dad really exemplified that generation. I want my sons to do better than I did. Right. I want my sons to not have to work in the coal mine. I gave them two baseball gloves and some baseballs. I want them to be baseball players. Right. And that's kind of where I believe he got his work ethic from, where he got his spirit from. He was a guy that wanted to work hard, make provide for his family, and make sure those around him were good and got the what they deserved. And that's a great example of it. And I think that was the perfect manager for the 69 Mets because that team was lost in the ether since their inception. Their first manager was Casey Stangle, and he was a grandstander. It was all about Casey. Casey was the reason why people would go to Met games in the beginning before they drafted Tom Seaver. But Gill was able to step into the background, and he was able to let the players be the stars, allow Kuzman and Seaver and all these other players to be New York stars and take the limelight, but when he needed to, he knew how to step up and step in like the shoe polish ball and help provide his team with a little extra edge or just a little sparkle to help them get to the next level. And I find that very interesting. And I, I is that, Why did he stay in Brooklyn? When the Dodgers moved out west, he went with them. Jackie Robinson got traded and retired, but Gil stayed and kept playing. He, he at that point, had been living in Brooklyn for about 15 years. His wife, Joan, was very connected to the neighborhood. She had grown up in Brooklyn. Her whole family was there. And um, Brooklyn, back in the day, was known as the borough of churches. Mm. You defined where you were based on what church you went to. So it really was, as you mentioned, a, a culture and a family life that he felt comfortable with. He uh, and also was financially connected to the neighborhood. He had, he had uh, invested in a bowling alley. Um, so which bowling alley was it? Gil Hodges Lane? Oh, Gil Hodges it's, Lane. Yeah. It's it's it's. Um, I don't know if it's still there with the same name. I'm not sure. I mean, up until fairly recently, it was still there, obviously under different ownership. But that was his community and his place. And and, uh, what would have happened in the longer term, I don't know. But up until that point when he died, he was pretty much Brooklyn was his home. And you know what? He was one of our biggest, you know, biggest stars and someone that gave Brooklyn that little bit of panache when after the Dodgers left, we still had Gil Hodges. We still had Gil Hodges. We still have his name. I actually bowled at Gil Hodges Lanes when I was in high school. I was a competitive bowler in high school, and I remember Gil Hodges Lanes. It was actually a very good bowling alley. Right. Yeah. And his wife stayed there until she passed away. No, she, no, she's still alive. She's still alive. She's wow. Still That's alive. Well, I feel, I feel dumb. It's okay. It's... Uh, she was there. She was still. She's still there. She's still I there. I know. And that's actually a great thing. And Gil originally was a catcher, but he got moved for Roy Campanella when right. he got started with the Dodgers. Right. How was his path to the major leagues? That's a good question. Let's let's um, go back when when he grew up in rural Indiana. In this, uh, he was born in a town called Princeton, Indiana. 
his father had to move to an even smaller town because of work uh, called Petersburg, Indiana. And Petersburg was such a small town that the high school did not even have a baseball team. So he played American Legion ball, and he was a shortstop. And he had, for his era, he he spouted to about six feet tall and 175 pounds in his junior year of high school. He already had hands that were quite huge and could palm a basketball or hold seven pool balls in his hand at one time. He was quite powerful and a slugger, yet he was a really smooth fielder. So he had that unusual combination of being a middle infielder and being a power hitter. Very rare for the you know late 30s, early 40s. Then he went to, uh, he got a scholarship to go to a small uh, school in northern Indiana called St. Joseph's. And there, they that particular team had a pretty good shortstop, and so they had to move Hodges to third base. Um, he was seen by a Dodger scout who um, actually ran a sporting goods store in Indianapolis and supplied the equipment to St. Joseph. So that's how he first came to see and kill Hodges. And so Hodges, um, basically at the, at the end of the 1943, in this case, summer season, Hodges during the summers when school was off would go play in what was called the Industrial League in Indianapolis. He worked for a corporation and these, these companies had summer leagues. And that's where the scout saw him and said, would you like to go have a tryout with the Brooklyn Dodgers? Uh, this was um, August 1943, and Hodges said, what have I got to lose? Hodges loved basketball and felt basketball was his best sport. He played in in college. He played basketball, baseball, football, and did track as well. But he said, what have I got to lose? The thing was that he had already committed to joining the Marines in the fall. Um, so he went for this tryout. And uh, he was in, held in um, Olean, New York, upstate New York. And it was a, hundreds of guys had come from the Midwest and, and uh, the New England area. And it became apparent to the people watching. One guy was a fellow named uh, Jake Pittler, who was the manager of the minor league team that was in Olean within the Dodgers organization. And a fellow named Branch Rickey Jr., the legendary Branch Rickey's son, this the son Junior was running the um, minor league organization for the Dodgers at that time, and they both concluded that Hodgers was a hitter on par with guys like power hitters, like for that era Jimmy Fox. It was interesting that they compared him to Jimmy Fox because. After Gil Hodges' last full season in the majors, 1962, he, as a right-handed hitter, he had hit more home runs than any other right-handed hitter in baseball history except Jimmy Fox. (laughs) So today, that 370 home runs don't sound like much, but at the time, basically 300 home runs uh, half a century ago was roughly the equivalent of what 500 are today. And... Back then, they only gave steroids to horses. Um, So his, um, to bring it back to your question, so during that tryout in Oleans, he was clearly the best player there. They brought him to Ebbets Field where he basically did a tryout for for Branch Rickey Sr. for two or three days. 
And Ricky concluded that Hodges should be a catcher. He looked at his hands and he looked at how fast his reactions were. He said he won't be a shortstop. He came up with something saying there was there was some hitch in his throwing motion. The hitch probably was that the Dodgers already had one of the all-time greats at shortstop who was then only 25 years old, Pee Wee Reese, and there was no way Hodges was going to supplant him at, at shortstop. So catcher was the position that, that uh, Ricky picked for him. He remained a catcher. When he came back from uh, World War II when he served as a Marine in Okinawa, and in 47, he was a third-string catcher. He didn't start. In 48, he was a catcher again. And the Dodgers that season brought up Roy Campanella. And as you mentioned, Roy Campanella was a superstar. And literally, because he had played already for a number of seasons in the Negro Leagues, from the minute he first stepped into the majors, he was the best catcher in baseball. <laughs> uh, he won three and National League MVPs within a ten within a nine year period, he was phenomenal. So what they did was Leo DeRocha, who was the manager of the team, said, "Gil, if I was you, I'd pick up a first baseman's mitt." And sure enough, that's what he did. He actually literally picked up the glove that Jackie Robinson had used in 1947. Many people don't know in 1947, Jackie Robinson played first base for the Dodgers because they were concerned that if he played middle infield, which was was his usual position. Um, racially motivated players on other teams would try and spike him. More difficult to do at first base. Um, so, it, but by '48, they had moved Robinson to second base, and here is the chance of Hodgers. He he uh, struggled in 1948, both at bat and in the field. But by '49, he learned his trade. And pretty much from 1949 until 1959, he was the best first baseman in baseball. Um, had, uh, for example, in talking to one of the old writers, a man named Jack Lang, who used to write for Newsday, he passed away a number of years ago, but he told me, and he saw all of the Dodger games and then later all major league games um, up until the early 1980s, and he told me um, that watching Gil Hodges, he was watching the best right-handed first baseman that he ever saw, and he probably was the best fielding first baseman he ever saw until Keith Hernandez of the Mets. Um, so there you go. That's how he came to first base, and then he, he took to it very well because of his athletic ability. He had been a basketball player first, and because basically he brought a middle infielder's approach to first base. To him, if the ball was hitting the hole, he went after it as if it was hitting the hole at shortstop. And you make a point in your book about catchers making that transition from behind a plate to first base. You bring up Mike Piazza. Right. And as a Met fan, growing up during that time period, I can tell you how laborious and aggravating it was to watch this organization make him move from catcher to first base because his knees were going on him. He wasn't the player that he was years before during their big run in the late 90s, early 2000s. But they wanted to keep him on the team because he was one of the, he was the best hitting catcher of all time. That's right. But it, it's not an easy transition. It made me wish the Mets were an American League team so we at least could DH. put them in DH. Right. But that team at the time was a dumpster fire, so it's really hard to talk about any of their moves without trying to throw a brick through a window. Uh, but do you think Gil Hodges, if he played today, would he have the same success he had in the in the 40s and 50s? Well, I think he would absolutely have the same success. Um 
I think one of the things you have to keep in mind, and um, it's interesting, Ralph Branca, who I interviewed for this book, he was the uh, pitcher on the Brooklyn Dodgers, told me what you don't realize today in terms of the athletics of, of, of baseball players, back then there were about there were very large minor leagues and there were the equivalent of approximately 25 or 26 players in the minors for every one position in the major leagues. Today, that ratio is way, way down. There's just not such an extensive minor league system. And great athletes are no longer just, you know, going to baseball as they did then. This is before pro football became pro football and basketball, and those became tremendous ways to make a living for a great athlete. Um, So I think the fact that he succeeded back then with his athletic skills, he would have definitely succeeded today. I know the athletes are bigger and stronger, uh, but he was basically approximately the same size physically and had the same kind of agility as Derek Jeter. He was about 6'1", 6'2", around 200 pounds. You know, guy who... Gil Hodges worked out. He was a tremendous athlete. He had that rare combination of... of, uh, Mobility as an infielder and incredible power hitting. And I don't know how he would take to the world of Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and all the social media out there. I don't think he'd be TMZ's best friend, but no. he would be—he would be what the Mets would need. If you look at the organization throughout its history, players like that, with the exception to the '80s, but even then we had players like a Gary Carter who were strong. They were about the team. They were for the team. They weren't about themselves as much as a lot of the other players, but they were a base. All the great Met friend, great Met teams had a base to them, and that's what built the great Brooklyn Dodgers teams, the teams that had a good, solid base of great fundamental players. And then you had the large stars. You had your Robins and you had your Pee Wee Reese's. You had your Ralph Frankas. And for those who don't know, Ralph Franca gave up the shot heard around the world to Bobby Thompson, and that was, uh, I believe, DeRocher was the manager of the Giants by then. Ben, yes, absolutely yeah. right. He managed uh, the Giants, <laughs> and it was a fearsome competition. Um I guess just just to answer your question about what would Hodges be doing in the current era, I know he could succeed on the field, uh, but I think in some ways he would be very limited because he was not the kind of guy, he was a quiet guy, and you wouldn't see him twittering. But, and I think this would have played much differently had ESPN existed back then. In my research... I read about a particular fielding play he had. Back then, people still bunted with regularity. And part of a first baseman's job was to try and go in there, get, get, get that ball, and especially when there's runner on first, try and get the lead runner, uh, try and throw the guy out of first base, whatever you could do with it, and have the pitcher cover. It was much more a part of the strategy of, of, of baseball than it is today where it's more of a basically a strikeout or a home run invariably. Though there's some teams that, that do run and, and might bunt more. But there was one case I read about where there was a bunt and Hodges was uh, charged it and he fielded the ball. The pitcher ran over to cover first base. And he just did not have enough time to turn around, pivot, and throw the ball back. He threw the ball between his legs to the first <laughs> baseman, and he got the out. 
Can you imagine if that occurred today, if a first baseman ever did that? That would be running nonstop on ESPN for a week. It would, it would be the headline on – it would be Deadspin all day. That, that would be the one thing on the front page of Deadspin or ESPN. Grantland would have eight think pieces about it. It would be the biggest thing in sports that week. <laughs> And, and that would be amazing. I, I kind of want to. I'm kind of sad that there's no video of that. And yes, I think that's one of the things that limits the growth of baseball in 2015 is that there's a lot of tape out there of a lot of great baseball games, but MLB kind of has a hold on a lot of it. The NFL, the NBA, they embrace their history. They play nothing but video and expose the history of their game. They have NFL films, and the NBA has great partnerships with. ESPN and HBO, they've done a litany of documentaries on it. But with baseball, there's not as much. You get baseball, the great Ken Burns documentary, and you get some stuff here and there on ESPN Classic and maybe the MLB Network. And yes. And yes. The Yankees. Yeah, the Yankees Network. And also a little bit on SNY. Yes. But if we were, if we had a lot of the great games of the 50s, the 40s, or if they released the radio calls, because they have them. A lot of these teams and a lot of these, you know, the, the Baseball Hall of Fame has to have them. Release them out there. Make them available to the public. Allow us to relive those games. Allow us to embrace and understand the history of the game. It'll open up a whole new path. It'll inspire more people to write books like yours. It'll inspire a new generation of baseball fans because I love baseball. I've grown up a baseball fan. I've been a Met fan my entire life, but... I'm more passionate about football because football history is more present. It's more a part of the sports culture. Baseball will have its great players and you'll have the great moments, but you don't have the little things about the nuances of the game and the evolution of the game. You, I would want to watch a, a Cincinnati Reds game from the seventies. I want to watch the Big Red Machine. I want to watch the. I want to watch more of the '69 Mets or the '70 Orioles. I don't want to have to scrounge and cr- scratch and claw to watch a, Met, a great Met game. I want to be able to get my hands on a '70s World Series game. But it's not as present, and I think that's one of the reasons why people shy away from baseball now more than they do the other sports. I I tell you, knowing a bit about history and being uh, 58 years old now, you can look at the evolution of pro football, and they were lucky enough in the 1960s to have a man named Pete Rozelle as, mm-hmm. as their commissioner. And Pete Rozelle came out of the world of public relations, and he basically, you know, uh, took football and saw that this was a game that 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 little box called television loves and he was the major figure in my mind that helped the game evolve that and the great success of the green bay packers in the 1960s and vince lombardi and those teams but the combination of all of that took football to a new level in the 60s baseball has historically not not been as good as public relations but they're getting better, but um, for a lot of these old films, though, they do not exist, unfortunately. Um, they've been destroyed, uh, but I will say that I went back to the wonderful Museum of Television and Radio here in New York, and I went back and I watched some of the World Series games from 1952 and 53 when I wrote this book. So they are there. They're just in museums stored away. They're not online yet. Maybe sometime someone will digitize them. I hope 
that will be the trend. Yeah, it is slowly coming out because I saw videos of Ty Cobb and Babe Ruth teaching hitting the other day, and there's been older tape going back into the earliest, earlier 20th century. But it's just interesting to see how baseball – and to go to the George Car- Carlin comparison, baseball <laughs> is built around its history, but it doesn't embrace it as much in the digital realm. You have b- books like this, and I love baseball books. Baseball books are some of my favorite things to read, and I've been really enjoying this book. If you don't buy this book, by the time this interview's out, uh, <laughs> Gil Hodges, A Hall of Fame Life by Mord Zachter is available from the University of Nebraska Press. If you don't buy this book and you consider yourself a Met fan or a Dodger fan or even a Texas Ranger fan or just a baseball fan in general, you're missing out on one of the key people in two generations of baseball because as a player and as a manager he affected two franchises that are held in high regard in the history of baseball you have the miracle mets of 69 and you have them bum dodgers who I, i this may just be a new york thing i may just speak from my own worldview on this but are two of the most important teams in important times in baseball history. If you look at the 50s and the late 60s going into the 70s, that's where baseball's evolution, re- those are big changing points. Because the, And also those Dodger teams, they're the first teams to go west in western expansion. Those are the real first victims of fran- what we now know as franchise removal because it left a hole in Brooklyn for over 40 to 50 years until the Dodgers, sh- uh, until the Cyclones showed up and even then we really didn't feel like a big sports town until the Nets showed up and now the Islanders but we still won our own major league team let's be honest if there was a new if there was a major league baseball team in Brooklyn it'd be sold out every day (laughs) at least in my opinion if you've been to the Cyclones games you know how packed it is on a Tuesday night in August imagine that at a brand new facility right in the heart of Brooklyn because they were going to build a new Dodger Stadium, a dome stadium, right where the Barclays Center is now. And thanks to uh, Mr. Moses, they wanted to move it to Flushing. But they're the Brooklyn Dodgers, not the Queens Dodgers. And I don't think New York Dodgers would have felt that good. I, I, I wouldn't have been a fan of that. But it is weird just to see how baseball as a culture evolves. And... I would have loved to see Gil Hodges in it, and I would have loved to see Leo DeRocha in it because he would have loved every single aspect of the of digital media and social media because he loved to be involved in the media and to be able to speak with someone on ESPN every day. I think he would have punched out the editorial staff of Deadspin by now if not been their best friends. And I think that stark comparison plays into 1969, the season where the Mets and the Cubs basically had a rolling brawl throughout the entire season up until the last week or month of the season where the Mets finally won the Ellie's pennant and got to face the Orioles in the World Series. What was the relationship between DeRosha and Gil Hodges? DeRosha was Hodges' first manager, and as you point out, DeRosha was as different a guy. There was nothing kept in for DeRosha. He went out of his way to embarrass umpires and kick dirt on them and scream at them. And he was, was had a really rough upbringing as compared to Hodges, who had a stable household environment, and I think that directly related to his being very stable, uh, plain vanilla kind of guy. Um, DeRosha... Um, is famous for the quote, um, nice guys finish last. But strangely enough, 
um, even though their lives intersected in a few crucial periods. One, literally, as I mentioned in the beginning of Hodge's career, when DeRosha said, go get yourself a first baseman's mitt, then... Um, in uh, other games like 1951, that famous playoff, the Giants and the Dodgers and the shot heard around the world. Well, the only reason there was a playoff in large part is because Leo DeRocha uh, installed a telescope and sent a field in the polo grounds that's, that's wonderfully written about in a book called The Echo in Green. Uh, in the first, before that was installed, if you look at the head-to-head matches, and at that time the Giants and the Dodgers would play 22 times in a season. Wow. Before the telescope was installed, I think the Dodgers lost once when they were playing at the Polo Grounds that season. Afterwards, they did not win again until the first game of that three-game uh, National League playoff. But... To get back to it, even though they were such different people, when Gil Hodges died at 47, um, Leo DeRocha, the, the quote, uh, obviously Leo DeRocha passed away long before I wrote this book, but um, he was heartbroken. He admired and respected Hodges, even though you know, DeRocha was a much gruffer kind. There was a mutual admiration because these were both guys who just understood baseball so well and appreciated the knowledge that they each had, even though, uh, as I say in the book, they were two guys who were praying from very different hymn books. (laughs) (laughs) What was Hodge's mindset in 69 going into the season? He knows the Cardinal, and we talked about this uh, last week uh, regarding Ernie Banks, because uh, we did an interview about Ernie Banks' right biography. Passing away. Yeah, his yeah, passing, passing away. In the biography, yeah. And they, the Cubs, they basically kind of... DeRosha could put the foot off the pedal at one point going to his stepkids' summer camp on Parents' Day right. instead of managing the team in the middle of a playoff race. But the Mets, they just kind of put the pedal down. The Cardinals fell apart. There was a whole thing going on in their organization. The Mets are the most beneficial franchise in the history of baseball because they have been able to pick up where other teams completely collapse. The Mets find a way, a will to win, some sort of backdoor entry to get to where they are. And I am thankful as a Mets fan that that happened. But in 69, how did the Mets come together and win that National League? Uh, Okay. I think the... They had a very good team that season, and Hodges was one of the first ones to see that they were going to change. Uh, let's let's look at the, the history. When the Mets were created in 62, from 62 to 1967, they were by far one of the worst teams in baseball. They finished in last place in the National League five times. Hodges came over in 68. They vastly improved because he just demanded that they give 100% Uh, of their attention and focus on being a professional, about thinking about the game. They uh, did not hit a 500 record in um, uh, 68. I think they won 70 or 72 games, something like that. But at the end of that season, Hodges had uh, a heart attack. 
and he, he occurred in Atlanta, and I actually spoke with the doctor, Linton Bishop, who was his cardiologist down in Atlanta after he had the, had the heart attack, and he was in the hospital for a while. And Linton told me that Hodges told him he really wanted to be ready for the 69 season because he said, I think we can win. He said, we have two really good pitchers. And, and so Hodges knew with Siva and Kuzman to a righty and a lefty combination – and he knew that he had certain players that were um, coming up, such as Gary Gentry, who became the third starter. And he had good pitching in the bullpen with Rod Taylor and Tug McGraw, who basically Hodges made a, re- a relief pitcher. McGraw had been a mediocre starter up until Hodges took over the Mets. Um, the the Mets were a good team that year from from the get go, but the Cubs are even better. I think there was two crucial elements that you have to look at. One was center field. Hodges had asked for Tommy Agee to be traded to the Chicago uh, from Chicago White Sox to the Mets in uh, at the end of the sixty seven year, so he had him there in sixty eight. Tommy Agee had a terrible year in nineteen sixty eight, in large part because on his very first at bat in the National League, Bob Gibson threw the ball at his head and hit him. <laughs> knocked him and he went to the hospital. Oh, God. He had a horrible season. That was Bob Gibson's welcome to the National League. But Hodges didn't lose faith in him. He had seen Tommy Agee in 1966 be the American League Rookie of the Year, steal over 40 bases, hit a good number of home runs that period, and field a terrific center field. He stuck with him. And in 69, it paid off. Uh, um, Tommy Agee made two of the best catches in in World Series history during during that uh World Series. Contrast that to DeRosha. DeRosha had a center fielder named Adolf Phillips. Adolf Phillips was a very good fielder. He wasn't as as good a hitter as uh, other center fielders that era, but he fielded the position solidly. This guy Phillips broke his hand before the 19... 19- uh, 69 season. DeRosha publicly complained about him that he was slow to come back. This Phillips was a sensitive guy. He, he lost confidence and DeRosha ended up trading him. What happened? DeRosha didn't think long term. They only had a guy, their, their center fielder after they traded Adolf Phillips was, had played the season before in, uh, in, in Tacoma, which is the single-A division of the Cubs. And then in a very crucial series, the center fielder um, made a couple of errors. This was um, in late June, early July in a, in a head-to-head game between the Mets and the Cubs. And that was one of the decisive moments in the season. So if you look at how they both handled center field that year between DeRosha and Hodges, you can see why the Mets became successful. Mm-hmm. Um one of the players on that, that 69 team was J.C. Martin. He was the backup catcher. He was quoted as saying that um, it, Martin later, after the 69 season, went to play for DeRocher in, the, in, in Chicago for two years. And J.C. Martin said in 1969, had Hodges managed the Cubs and DeRocher been managing the Mets, it would have been the Cubs that won the National League East, not the Mets. He thought that much of Hodger's managerial ability. He changed 
it basically the players knew just do what Gil tells you and give it your all and we could win and and uh, he platooned uh, a lot of the players in the majority of the positions because he just didn't have that many everyday players on the team so that was another uh, major aspect and uh, also not to be forgotten is during the um Late part of the season in August, the Mets started to tail off, and they actually for a while fell back to third place tied with St. Louis. They had lost three straight games in Houston to the Astros, and at the end of that, as Don Clendenin wrote in his, he was the first baseman on the team in his autobiography, he said, Gil just closed the door, and then he gave us, quote-unquote, an ass-chewing. <laughs> well, after that ass-chewing, the Mets went on. Uh, that was a period where they, they reeled off this incredibly. They won like 85% of the games the rest of the season, and they basically won it going away by about uh, a significant margin over the Cubs. And I, as a Met fan, am thankful for that 69 championship, even though it was about 20 years before I came onto this planet. Just to have those two in arguments against Yankee fans and against any other baseball fan, it, it's it's hard to win an argument against a Yankee fan because they try to keep using we've got the rings argument, but we had Gil, so we can get by. Uh, what? Why isn't Gil Hodges in the Hall of Fame? That is the million-dollar question. And I will tell you, I devote the afterword of this book to answering that question. I will say the I'll do a threefold answer that I could talk for this about for an hour and answer that. <laughs> Number one, to be very honest, which when you ask that question to people that love Gil Hodges and admire him and want him to be in the Hall of Fame, they don't give this answer. He unfortunately played in an era where you just had so many superstars. Even just on the Dodgers, you had so many superstars. Guys who were legendary all-time players, like Campanella, like Robinson, like Duke Snyder, like Pee Wee Reese. His name, as Frank Graham Jr. told me, was kind of lost in the lineup. But the point was that Gill was just not as good as... Stan Musial, Willie Mays, Henry Aaron, Ted Williams... These were the players in that era, but that doesn't mean he's not deserving. He was a great power hitter, he was a great fielder, and then he was a great manager. What unfortunately happened is in the 15 years when he was was um, up for election by the Baseball Writers Association, in 10 of the 15 years, you had a first ballot, no-brainer Hall of Famer come up. And what then happens is the guys who each year Hodges' vote total was increasing slightly um, would then vote for this other person. So basically it also didn't help um, Hodges that... At that time, you only looked... The baseball writers were supposed to either look at it as either he's a player or a manager. When he first came up to be eligible for the Hall of Fame, he was a manager. He was one of the best managers in baseball. He was one of the most highly paid managers in baseball. And everyone thought he'll end up in the Hall of Fame as a manager if he continues the success of the 69 Mets and they win another World Series. Unfortunately, he died young. Um... So that's the answer regarding when he was up for the writers. Then when he's up with the committee, uh, the the different veterans committee that exists. Veterans committee basically are, are dominated by the form. The Hall of Fame players are in the room when they decide this. And what invariably happens when you get athletes gathered together, they will subconsciously, they won't discuss it, 
But they will immediately understand who is the best player or athlete in the room, and that person dominates the discussion. Unfortunately for Hodges, in the 1980s, when he first came up on the um, Veterans Committee, Ted Williams was on the committee, and Ted Williams dominated the committee. Ted Williams, like all of the guys in, in who are on these committees, favor their teammates. They love the guys they went to war with. So the first year Ted Williams was on the committee, the second baseman on the, the uh, Boston Red Sox, a guy named Bobby Dorr, was elected to the Hall of Fame. Uh, Williams was just... He just filled up a room, any room he was in. He lobbied to try and get Dom DiMaggio in the Hall of Fame. Dom DiMaggio told him that if you get me in, I won't show up to the to the induction ceremony. I don't deserve it. So, uh, and then to take it to like this this last vote, the last time someone was voted in by the Golden Era Committee, which is what Hodges is is eligible on now was um, three years ago when Ron Santo was picked. Well, Ron Santo, who I think was a deserving Hall of Fame player, he was lucky enough to have Billy Williams being on the committee. Billy Williams was the left fielder on those great Chicago teams that Ron Santo was the third baseman on. Billy Williams obviously pushed hard for him to be in, and he got in. To give you an idea of the how unfair it is, under the Baseball Writers Association, in his 15 years on the ballot, Gil Hodges accumulated over 3,000 votes. Ron Santo only got about 1,700. Mm. And this last time around, when there were really nine very worthy, in my mind, candidates, Hodges uh, got three votes or less, in large part, again, because the guys who were in that room doing the voting supported their teammates. Uh, Rod Carew is on the committee. Who's Rod Carew going to vote for? He's, he, he, you know, Jim Cott, his teammate on Minnesota, and Tony Oliva, another teammate on Minnesota. Um, um, so, so I would say right now it's been a lot of bad luck for Hodgers, and at this point his early death and the fact that a lot of the people who were his teammates are just not there to support him anymore. They're all gone, Don Drysdale, Reese. Campanella. Um, I'm, I hope that in the future, in the near future, maybe one of his players would go in and be in this committee, such as Tom Seaver, uh, to, to do this. But uh, for whatever reason, that hasn't happened yet. I hope it happens next time, next time, because it will be very ironic if in 2019, for the 50th anniversary of the 1969 Mets, if Earl Weaver... And Leo DeRocher in the Hall of Fame, but the guy who outmaneuvered them both that season, <laughs> Gil Hodges, is not. And that's unfair. I believe that if there's any justice in the Baseball Hall of Fame, Gil Hodges will be in as not only a player but a manager. And if he does go in, my final question to you, if he goes in, what's on the cap? On his cap, that's a very good question. It would probably be... Um, the the Mets because the Brooklyn Dodgers don't exist anymore. Mm. I think that's what it would be. Uh, um, I, you know, when the Dodgers moved out west, people forget they won the World Series in 1959, and Hodges was a major component on that team. But the man that moved them, and it was a brilliant. Uh, 
economic move. It was a brilliant move. It was expected in baseball at that mm-hmm. time. Um, the Washington Senators were thought that they would be the first team to move. They ended up moving to Minnesota. But Walter O'Malley moved him. And after that, because Walter O'Malley was so reviled in in Brooklyn because the people lost their team, it would be really, and even though the O'Malley's don't own the team anymore, it would really be a surprise if he went in if he had an L.A. on it. Yeah, that, that, that would, it just wouldn't go. I think the NY would, would kind of encapsulate the Brooklyn Dodgers era. Yeah, and I think, I think, I think it should be the Mets. I think uh, if they're talking about people inducting people with expos on their uh, on their cap, I think that we could put the B on there. But maybe the Mets one. Why not just give them three hats and let them wear them on top of each other? I've been pitching that for a while. No one really wants wants to do that. I understand. You look a little silly. <laughs> <laughs> But, Mort, thank you so much for coming all the way out here, sitting down and talking with me. You're very welcome. Man. It's a it's a great book, Gil Hodges, A Hall of Fame Life by University of Nebraska Press. It is available right now on Amazon and also just find it at your local bookstore and support this great book. Support University of Nebraska Press and support friend of the show, Mort Zachter. Mort, thank you once again for joining Thanks. us. Thanks. Thank you so much, Mort, for joining us on the show this week. Once again, you can pick up his book, Gil Hodges, A Hall of Fame Life, on Amazon or in a bookstore near you. But if you want to buy it through Amazon, go through our Amazon link on 22weekspodcast.wordpress.com. Get yourself a copy, and you also support the podcast by doing that. And thank you so much, Mort, once again for doing that. Coming up in the next few weeks, we've got great conversations with Kent McDill, the author of If These Walls Could Talk, an inside look at the Chicago Bulls dynasty. He was one of the few reporters to get inside the Chicago Bulls dynasty, and he had covered the dynasty from 1988 all the way up until 1999, the the season after Michael Jordan's last season in Chicago. We go inside the Bulls then and now, and also a talk of the NBA on the whole. That one's a great conversation coming at you next week on the show. And also in a few weeks, this one is a split interview between 22 weeks and Gotta Say It. That's right, Gotta Say It is coming back. It'll be on the Hive Mind Radio Network starting April 8th at 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern. That's right, we're live on the Hive Mind Radio Network starting April 8th two hours every Wednesday, and we'll be announcing another affiliate in the next few weeks, so you want to stay tuned for that announcement. But that interview will be with John Unitas Jr. That's right, the son of Hall of Fame quarterback Johnny Unitas will be sitting down with me, and we'll be talking his new book about his life with the Hall of Fame quarterback. That and so much more coming up in the next few weeks. We want to thank you for supporting the 22 Weeks Podcast in and out of the season. You can follow us on Twitter at 22WeeksPod. You can like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash 22Weeks. You can also like me on the Twitter machine by going to at I'm Matt Ryan. You can follow me. You can also like me too. I know there's not a like button, but you just like me. Like me as a person, and I, I greatly will appreciate it. You can also check out my website, I'mMattRyan.com. You can listen to my other podcasts. I do a podcast every week with Stephanie Sotili, a contributor to 22 Weeks, every Monday at noon, the No Small Talk Podcast. You can get that on iTunes and Stitcher as well. Also go to nosmalltalkpodcast.wordpress.com. And also KY. This week is the season finale of KY. You can catch this that episode and all the other nine episodes of season one right now on iTunes or Stitcher or KY Radio. 
kyradiostation.wordpress.com. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We'll be seeing you sometime real soon. We'll see you next week, actually. On the other side of Sunday, this has been the 22 Weeks Podcast on 22weekspodcast.wordpress.com, iTunes, and Stitcher. Bob, 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 Bob.